Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. My guest today on this episode of the Nashville Sounding Board is Will Pinkston, who just recently announced that he will be resigning from the Metro Nashville Public School Board effective April 12th, and so that letter he published on Twitter, where, of course, many of you know he is very active, published that on March 25th. Welcome, Mr. Pinkston. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Ben. Let me first say I appreciate you not introducing me as controversial school board member, Will Pinkston. I'm sure that'll come later. But uh, let me also say to take a page from uh, the old talk radio vernacular. I'm a uh, longtime listener, first-time caller. Happy to be here. There we go. I love it. And so let's start, I guess, with your personal background for people who may not be familiar. An interesting one to arrive where you're at now. Yeah. So I'm a uh, mostly Nashville native, bounced around a bit as a kid, uh, but ended up in Nashville, ultimately raised by my grandparents. Uh, I'm a product of Metro Nashville Public Schools, graduated from Overton High School, uh, class of 1989, go Bobcats, and, um, and uh, you know, banged around journalism for a while, both at the Tennessean and later for the Wall Street Journal. Got out of that, uh, worked for a guy named Philip Redison in 2002 when he was running for governor. Uh, he run, uh, won, rather, and uh, and I worked for him off and on the entire time he was governor, uh, supporting him either in the state capitol or in his re-election campaign in 2006. Because he was so focused on public education, everybody around him had to be. So we um, improved teacher pay, took a small pre-K pilot program, took it to a 1,000 classrooms statewide, uh, modernized the state's basic education program uh, funding formula uh, to put more money uh, into the classroom and teacher pay, uh, tripled the tobacco tax in order to do that, raised academic standards, and ultimately um, uh, passed uh, a series of measures that laid the groundwork for Tennessee's race to the top proposal that funneled about a half a billion dollars into Tennessee over a period of years beginning in uh, 2010. Uh, I uh, made the uh, fatal career mistake, I joke, of uh, running for and getting elected to the Nashville School Board in 2012. It's been mostly a good experience, but I'm ready to move on to greener pastures. What's one thing that people don't know about your background? One thing that people don't know about my background, um, I have this intense passion for helping English learners uh, that is under-recognized, in my opinion. In uh, the part of town where I grew up, uh, when I grew up, it was largely white, lower middle class. Uh, Today, that's the part of town that we uh, refer to as Little Kurdistan, uh, which is home to the largest population of Kurdish immigrants in America. Uh, One of the great joys of my life in school board service has been being part of the Kurdish community uh, in the Salahuddin Center, which is uh, the, the hub of the Kurdish community. And as recently as last weekend, I was there meeting with them to talk about creating a new Kurdish language program uh, in the school system. And and I think some of these social media fights and the political uh, skirmishing and everything else overshadows uh, a lot of the work that individual school board members do, not just me, uh, but uh, others uh, who are very focused on very specific constituencies. So one of your big issues, of course, has been the charter fight. And one thing that I found really compelling about your background is that you used to be uh, staunchly pro-charter. If I remember correctly, you were on the a founding board member of a charter school here. And then at some point there was a falling out and now you're about the you're about the most 
anti-charter person that one can find in the city. Can you explain that switch for us and, and kind of what happened um, both intellectually and perhaps personally that drove that switch? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm one of the only board members um, who actually founded a charter school or co-founded a charter school. And through that experience, I realized that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors aspects to it. And through that experience, I learned uh, that it has the potential to really be uh, a, a deleterious uh, event on a, a local school system from a fiscal perspective as well as as other uh, aspects. So, um, you know, I'm like anybody else in life. You know, I live and I learn, and I uh, lived through a charter startup, became disillusioned by it, and changed my opinion. Regardless of what people think about you, I think that's too often not present in politics is the ability to recognize and change one's mind. Yeah. You mentioned, you joked that running for school board was a professional mistake. One mistake that you have publicly come out with recently was your involvement in the Race to the Top program. You wrote a, a I believe, was it 16,000 word piece called Race to the Bottom, How Bad Actors Tried to Destroy Public Education. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is the opportunity where I give a shameless plug to what can either be described as a very short book or a mind-numbingly long essay. I would encourage anybody <laughs> to go uh, read it. It's race to the bottom us, and uh, it is essentially the story of the last decade of public education reform uh, in Tennessee. Tennessee, of course, was the leading state in President Obama's race. Race to the Top initiative, which was his signature schools program. Uh, We uh, won $500 million, uh, plus or minus, to help uh, improve schools. I don't think uh, most of that money was well spent in retrospect. Uh, But the real problem with Race to the Top was not wasted federal funds. It was uh, in creating what I referred to as irrational exuberance in the education reform conversation in Tennessee. Irrational exuberance is a term that was coined uh, by Alan Greenspan, the former Federal Reserve Chair uh, in the 90s uh, relative to uh, an an overinflated stock market around the tech bubble at that time. I co-opted the term uh, for this piece, race to the bottom.us. And basically, uh, I argue that a bunch of well-intentioned reforms were hijacked during a political transition uh, between Phil Bredesen and Bill Haslam. Uh, a bunch of people who Haslam put in charge inherited a huge amount of money, uh, federal money that was uh, further uh, exacerbated by f- another $100 million in philanthropy. And they set out to essentially use the opportunity to destroy the grand bargain uh, that was placed between the teachers unions and the state government and the local school systems and instead uh, dismantle state government, mostly through the creation of uh, unabated charter growth. Why do you you thank me for not introducing you as controversial school board member Will Pinkston, but why do you think people find you so polarizing? Oh, I think that um, I uh, am willing to say what's on a lot of people's minds, uh, but they don't want to say it because they don't want to take the the criticism and the attacks that I take. And I don't blame them. It's uncomfortable uh, sometimes, but I don't know any other way to speak than speak plainly. I mean, I did it as a newspaper reporter um, and uh, I did it uh, in government and I'm not going to quit as a a middle-aged man. So there have been kind of through the years, going back to the days under Superintendent Register, some really aggressive, I guess, 
tweets mainly from from you directed at former teacher Jason Egley. Uh, you had spats over the years with people like Visha Wilson Hawkins, as well as Holly McCall. Do you do you think the rhetoric and kind of online behavior, um, I guess, sets a good example, or are you kind of of the Charles Barkley school of thinking that you don't need to be a role a role model? Yeah. So some of those people and and many others are are the ones I would refer to as nitwits, uh, typically on Twitter. You do. Yeah, and they're all basically have been at different times on the payroll uh, of the opposition. So I think it's important uh, for you to recognize and for anybody to recognize that there's an entire cottage industry that has been built up in this town uh, to tear down me and other school board members. And they haven't just spent thousands of dollars. It's been tens of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in uh, PR firms and uh, and direct mail uh, slander campaigns and phone campaigns and everything else. So, you know, these are all people who are on the take um, and it's important to recognize that. I guess one one final question about sort of the social media stuff. Um, immediately preceding your announcement, and you published a letter on March 25th explaining that you were going to resign, and that was the Monday following the, the school board retreat. That was the previous Friday. And I guess over that weekend, you had tweeted that one of your children was going to attend a certain zone school, and you're very proud that you weren't going to – um, enroll them in a magnet school or a charter school or a private. And then I, I don't remember exactly what the the principal of that school responded, um, but the end result was you pulling your kid out of the school, saying you're going to consider going to a magnet school or a private school, and basically urging other people um, to boycott the school and boycott that principal. Um, that seemed like quite an about face. I was personally shocked to see you considering sending your kid to a private school. Um, and then did, did that play a role in the resignation announcement? Were you just kind of sick of it? Or walk me through that weekend because that – I mean even for you on Twitter, that was surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, the So first of all, I decided about a month earlier to resign. Uh, I okay. feel like the, the attacks on Dr. Joseph have been racially motivated. I feel like – uh, it's impossible to get anything real uh, done on the school board at this point, and I think that uh, the school board needs to do, uh, as a body and people individually, need to do a lot of soul searching to figure out where things go from here. Um, you know, we toured. I toured with my family a middle school on that Friday before I announced my resignation, and was on the bubble, uh, but decided. Uh, that we would uh, commit. And then the very next day, the principal of the school, a guy named Gary Hughes, um, who has you know had issues uh, in the past, uh, decided to weigh into the middle of board politics on social media uh, relative to the school budget. And uh, at that point, I just decided I cannot in good faith invest my family, my own time in a school where a principal is going to be wading into the middle of board and budget politics. I can't do that to my family. So uh, I took a deep breath and said, not go in there. And uh, we're going to do something different. And if it means going private, then that's what we'll do. And that's that's what happened. Around that same time, one of the budget issues that was being talked about was teacher pay. Was that an issue? Was that what he was bringing up? 
Uh, yes, uh, he was bringing up teacher pay, and there is a very uh, hot conversation going on uh, right now. We're actually in the middle of leadership elections for the Metro Nashville Education Association. Um, it started in uh, early to mid-March, and it'll probably run through most of April. And uh, the uh, the different factions uh, have been lighting up everybody on social media, uh, asking for, in some cases, an 18% pay raise, which is just not going to happen. The mayor's been very clear with the board uh, that you've got um, 25 to $30 million in new revenue to work with in the upcoming fiscal year. That's the revenue constraints of the city. Uh, those aren't imaginary numbers. And, um, and uh, instead of saying, okay, let's knuckle down, figure out what a multi-year plan looks like to correct the compensation inequities that have taken years and years and years to build up. They're not going to be solved overnight. Instead, um, some people uh, want to go for instant gratification, and it's and they're not going to get it because the, the money's not there. So you've got one faction of the board that's uh, poised to ask for a 6% uh, teacher uh, pay and staff pay increase on top of the 3% cost of living adjustment that's already there. You've got another group of uh, board members who want to go for a 10% employee pay raise on top of the 3% uh, cost of living adjustment. And uh, none of it's realistic. It's all make-believe. It's fictional. It's, you know, you can go there and you can hold out hope to employees or you can say uh, the truth, which is, it's not going to happen this year, uh, but let's all work together to fix it in the future. So, I mean, recognizing that due to those very real budget constraints, unless they, unless the city chooses to raise property taxes, you're totally spot on. There's just not enough money for a, a basically a 13% raise across the board. Um, but aside from kind of the false hope point, what's the harm in the school board sending a powerful message that in order to recruit and retain talented teachers, we need that kind of substantive pay raise? And so to kind of goal set and to send the strong message that this is what we need. And then I think everybody, like you're not the only one that realizes that kind of pay raise isn't possible this year. So what's how is it that destructive to go ahead and, and vote for something that that we need down the road? Well, I'll ask you, I mean, how is it not productive uh, to send uh, a budget to the mayor and the council that's built on sand, uh, but rather send them a more thoughtful communique that says, here's what our analysis shows, here's where we are, here's where we need to be, uh, what can you do to help us get there, and over what period of time does that happen? But mm -hmm. just punting the ball is completely irresponsible, um, and, um, and I don't believe in doing that. So last year, the the school budget that went forth, um, they didn't get even close to the amount of funding that Dr. Joseph had requested from Metro. So I guess it doesn't seem that much different to me. So here, here's what happened. Over a period of years, uh, Carl Dean, former mayor Carl Dean, and my um, disdain for him is widely known because of his embrace of the charter movement. But he uh, routinely balanced the school system's budget using one-time money to match recurring expenditures. Basically, uh, think about it this way. You're pulling out of the savings account to pay the mortgage. That's not you know, fiscally responsible practice for any household or any organization. Well, guess what? Uh, last year, the savings account was depleted to the point to where there wasn't much money to pull out of it. And therefore, um, the, uh, the House of Cards uh, that uh, is the MNPS budget uh, for the past several years collapsed all of a sudden. 
Uh, we only had about $5 million in new revenue uh, from the city in the current fiscal year, which mm-hmm. we're a little more than halfway through. Uh, but uh, about 13 to $14 million of it went uh, out the door uh, to pay for cash outlays for charter schools. So w- essentially, we've been cut this year. Um, so this year was a wake-up call for a lot of people uh, around the city who didn't realize how dire the fiscal situation is. Kind of diving into that, kind of one last point about the about the fiscal situation. I've tried to dig through and look at the administration costs for the district, and it's a little bit difficult in how it's is how it's represented because you have they break out central office, and then there's also admin that very clearly is part of the general district. Um, but by my my calculations, it looked like the admin costs rose nearly 28 percent between fiscal year 2015 and 2018 before dipping about 4% this past year because of the budget crisis metro-wide. But is this growing administration cost a concern to you? And if so, do you have any ideas to help rein that in? The admin cost uh, in the central office is a moving target. It always has been. Um, it doesn't make it right. Uh, it it uh, it just is what it is. Um, and I, all I can tell you is I've been around a lot of bureaucracies over the years at the local, state, and federal levels. And the best way I know to assess a bureaucracy is just to walk the halls of the building. And when I walk the halls of the building, it does not feel bloated. It does not feel excessive. It feels about what we need to run an organization of 86,000 customers, students of 11,000 employees. Um, It feels um, in some ways like it might not be big enough. And as a percentage basis, of the overall uh, budget that we have, it's it's nominal. Everybody likes to point to the central office. You know, if you could just you know uh, cut fat in the central office, everything will be fine. But that belies the reality of what's really going on in a chronically underfunded school system that's frankly in the bottom third of uh, public uh, school systems uh, in America uh, when it comes to per pupil funding. Right. Yeah. That's that's true. Um, walking the halls. I don't know. That feels like a bit of a subjective sort of analysis. But I mean, I I understand the perspective. Kind of big picture now, what are you most proud of from your time on the school board? Perhaps it's the English language learner work. And then what is your biggest regret, if you have any at all? Yeah, I'm most proud of the fact that uh, particularly during my second term, we have deployed a best-in-class uh, evaluation system, both for the director of schools, the superintendent, as well as the board. Uh, there were entire years that went past when uh, the superintendent was not evaluated at all. Uh, the board has never uh, looked at its own uh, uh, performance uh, measures. And now we've got a system that evaluates uh, the director of schools twice a year, as well as a board self-assessment annually. And whether the board maintains you know, those those tools that have been built, I don't know. I hope they do, uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm proud that we got there, and it, and it represents real accountability, and it's been nationally recognized, but it never gets um, any credit, and, and I'm okay with that. I mean, everything gets overshadowed by social media. It's much easier if you're a newsroom uh, with a bunch of tired reporters to report on what's going on on Twitter than to report on what's actually happening uh, behind the scenes, and I get that as a former reporter. Um, I'm also really proud of the fact that um, that we 
have embarked on a real conversation about equity. Dr. Joseph has taken a lot of slings and arrows over the past year, but it all started uh, when he took up the charge by the board to promote equity and funding uh, for all students in the school system. So what happened in this budget year where you have limited resources, um, he said, you know what, what little new money we have, we're going to steer toward high-need students and high-need schools in East Nashville and North Nashville, the inner city, and we're going to steer uh, resources, limited new resources to English learner schools in South Nashville. And what that meant was uh, some West Nashville schools in the Hillsborough and Hillwood cluster uh, didn't get a second art teacher or they didn't get, you know, a new garden. Um, and uh, and that's too bad, uh, but that doesn't mean uh, – attack everybody because you didn't get what you want that year. So at the end of the day, I believe what we've set in motion is a real honest conversation about equity, what it looks like, and who has to give up something in order for the highest need students in schools to succeed. Before we get to your biggest regret, on the equity point, to me, that perhaps is the profound thing about the point that charter advocates make is that sort of the way that schools are zoned and districts are divided up, fundamentally, it's not equitable. And you have high poverty, high need schools that need more support than a prosperous school in, in West Nashville. It seems like to me that trying to fix the equity problem should be a, a opportunity for kind of both sides of that charter debate to come together. Um, and it seems like you sort of broke with longtime ally Amy Frog on that point and later on the support of Dr. Joseph. Why do you think that others didn't see that in a district now that has 21 priority schools, and, and that means they're in the bottom 5% within the state, shouldn't those schools receive uh, as much of additional funding as possible? Gosh, Ben, there are like 18 different questions <laughs> inside that question. <laughs> I guess the first thing I would say is I'm not a big believer in rating schools as a reward school or a priority school. And, and unfortunately, I was part of the team that devised that rating structure uh, a decade ago, and I regret it now, as um, you can see in my uh, piece, Race to the Bottom.us. The, the whole notion of priority schools was not intended to be a punitive thing which and to be weaponized, which is what it has been. And by the way, priority schools, as Ben mentioned, are schools that are deemed to be in the bottom 5% of uh, the state based on standardized testing. Um, it was intended to be uh, a signal flare for these are the schools that we need to put more resources into. Well, guess what? Most of the priority schools in Nashville are uh, have been cannibalized by charter schools that have opened right around the corner um, or in some cases across the street uh, to suck resources out of the very schools that need them the most. So the charter movement is incredibly hypocritical and duplicitous because they don't want to support all students. What they want to do is cherry pick in admissions, counsel out kids who aren't making the grade, and get uh, the resources that they want to educate a gerrymandered student population, and then they pour private fundraising on top of it. So it's a totally dishonest movement, and anybody who's studied it for five minutes figured that out. It actually took me a couple of years, so I feel like I was a little bit uh, behind the curve in that respect. The other thing I would say is that is that using a state standardized test that has 
failed for three consecutive years, soon to be four consecutive years, is not the right way to determine what's a good school and what's not. In my school system, uh, my school district rather, which is um, school board district, which is in South Nashville and Southeast Nashville, more than forty percent of the kids in the schools that I represent are English learners, either. English learner uh, uh, designation or limited English proficiency, um, you know, that's 10 times the state average of students who are struggling with language acquisition. Uh, Those students in those schools are not going to test well on a a state standardized test. They're just not. But that doesn't make them bad schools. Uh, In fact, they're great schools. In some cases, I've got schools that are 60 and 70 percent English learner schools and uh, LEP, limited English proficiency. They're amazing schools, um, uh, but they just need to be flooded with more resources to help those kids. And I don't uh, think for a minute that it's right to evaluate a school or a student based on a test score. Okay, and and I won't get into what alternative ideas you might have for evaluating schools. I, it's if, a data point. You, it's okay. a data point. I mean, it, it it yeah, take it, you know, use it to to improve, use it to make decisions around uh, prioritizing budget, but don't hang everything on is something this or that because you know we one thing we know in education is. There's no silver bullet. It's a range of solutions, and that's true from the accountability side as well as the funding side as well as uh, the academic side. The thing that you're most proud of is how the board has created mechanisms to evaluate itself and also to evaluate the performance of the superintendent. What is your biggest regret from your time on the school board? My biggest regret is that we weren't able to engineer meaningful change in during my time on the board. Yeah, we hired a new superintendent. Yeah, we built these new accountability systems. But look at where we are today. You know, we're in the middle of a of a very polarized racial conversation, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, just today, uh, Betsy DeVos uh, came in to high five uh, the new governor, Bill Lee, over his push for vouchers, uh, which is going to dramatically impair the budgets of urban school systems. And uh, we're knotted up in litigation uh, with the state over the inadequate funding of the basic education program, which is the state formula for funding schools. So, you know, I think we've made nominal progress, but in some ways, um, you know, there have been a lot of setbacks. And, you know, I don't know that there's anything I would have done differently. I think in some ways, we are victims of the time. Uh, this goes back to the irrational exuberance that I talked about earlier. It's been around for a decade. It's dissipated for a bit, and you can see that with the um, the uh, uh, slowdown in charter school applications. But um, but it's still irrational the conversation, and it and it needs to be right sized. You clearly feel pretty strongly that the treatment of Superintendent Dr. Joseph has been racially charged and. And then you trace back the beginnings of the push to drive Dr. Joseph out. You trace that back to the choice to allocate additional new funding to high-need, heavily minority schools. Mm-hmm. So if, if that is at the root of what's transpired over the last 11 or 12 months, is that itself, that opposition, racist, racial, racially charged – Yeah, I mean, all I can say is what I've experienced personally in the conversation. And while I represent primarily the Glencliff and Overton clusters and and the Antioch clusters on the school board, and by the way, I'm a product of Overton High School, uh, class of 89, I think I said earlier, um, 
even though I, I represent those clusters, I'm a Hillwood cluster, excuse me, a Hillsborough cluster parent. Uh, I live on the far western edge of my district, which is the 12 South neighborhood. And I remember when the equity conversation first started, I remember getting a text message from a parent at my child's school um, who said, this equity stuff is BS. And I won't say the, the full word. And um, I deleted Will Pinkston it. is censoring himself. I know, right? I mean, that's the one thing. I've never said dirty words on Twitter. Um, but uh, but uh, I deleted it. And, uh, and then I heard similar comments. Uh, from what I would consider to be white privileged parents on the west side of town uh, in the ensuing weeks and months. And I thought, you know, something's happening here. Something is wrong in the city when people are not willing to give a little bit um, in order to help the students who really need help. And then furthermore, um, something's wrong when people can't bring themselves to advocate for adequate resources for all schools, not just theirs. And I began to sense that maybe the value system of the city is not where we thought it was in 2018 and 2019. And that's kind of where I've landed. Going back to the thing you're most proud of, the kind of evaluation mechanisms, why can't this school board just assess in an earnest manner the performance of Dr. Joseph and then come to a decision about his future? Uh, it seems like that's been... For something you've taken pride in, mm-hmm. that seems like it's been an impossible task. Yeah, uh, it's impossible because you've got a third of the board that insists on registering artificially low ratings uh, for the superintendent and then trying to weaponize the process against him. Um, you know, if we were Congress, as I said in my resignation letter, and there were a handful of cranks over in the corner of the room, uh, making a lot of noise, then it'd be pretty easy to drown those people out. But in this case, you've got uh, a third of the board, uh, a third of the body, uh, which is acting in bad faith, and that paralyzes uh, everything else. So they have set out uh, basically to uh, depict him uh, in a way that says there's nothing good happening in the school system, and that's just not true. In the same way that that straight A's you know, are not credible, straight F's are not either. And so an evaluation process only works uh, as well as uh, people are willing to uh, treat it uh, honestly and in good faith, and that's not happening here. So let's talk a bit about what you see as Dr. Joseph's achievements. There's been a slight uptick in ACT scores across the district, I think primarily attributable to the district, I believe, paying for retests. Just as an observer in the community, it's kind of been hard for me to see a lot of successes there, but maybe I'm overlooking stuff. Well, I think it's hard to see much success in particular over the last year because it's been nothing but nonstop warfare uh, by uh, two and, and eventually three board members, including one who's newly elected. So, you know, that's that's nearly half of his tenure uh, in Nashville. He's been here two and a half years, and the last year has been nothing but nonstop attacks. So, you know, think about if you if you were trying to do your job in that environment, you know, how much progress would you be able to make, um, and uh, or at least how much progress would you be able to telegraph uh, to uh, the end user, meaning citizens, taxpayers, teachers, parents. And students. Um, in Dr. Joseph's case, I think he has uh, had some very strong headwinds, but has made progress nonetheless. Um, he has completely redesigned uh, the the upper management structure of the school system that looks much more 
logical and sensible than anything uh, that, that we've had in the past. Before, or when I joined the board, I should say, uh, it was just kind of a hodgepodge of, of upper and middle managers. And Dr. Joseph kind of created the same structure uh, to drive change that they have in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is where he spent most of his career, which is generally considered to be the highest performing school system in the country. So just even restructuring uh, the the you know the central office is is a big accomplishment. Uh, the equity thing uh, is ultimately what he's going to be remembered for. Uh, I believe uh, driving a real conversation about how you program outsized amounts of new resources in high need schools to students who need them most uh, has touched off a real conversation that's going to be here long after he's gone. Uh, and uh, and I think that that's that's an accomplishment in in and of itself. And that took courage. Uh, you know, the the previous superintendent wouldn't have ever touched that kind of conversation because he knew uh, that it was a, a third rail. Uh, and Dr. Joseph came in and uh, and and poked the bear, so to speak. And I think that that's what he's going to be re- remembered for primarily. Do you think Dr. Joseph underestimated the political consequences of, the, of that decision? I do. I do. I think that... Uh, and he also just kind of communications, you're, you're a communications pro, and the rollout of that, I think one of the critiques was that the rollout was awful. No one knew it was coming. There were no kind of forums explaining it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I said earlier, I think about 75% of Dr. Joseph's problems, he inherited the other 25%, you know, you know, he created, and that's on him. And, and none of us are perfect. And I've I've said that uh, multiple times publicly. I think one of the big failings uh, has been communications or lack thereof. All that said, I've have found lack of communication or communications failures to be endemic in the field of public education. There's something about uh, people who kind of wake up at the dawn of their career and say, "I'm going to go work with, with children all day every day." That somehow sometimes makes them not capable of communicating with adults. And and that's not a critique of the teaching profession. It's not all of them, but a lot of them I've noticed, um, you know, have that in the same way, you know, people who are in the clergy. I mean, you, it takes a, people who are cut from a certain cloth to feel called to a profession. And sometimes, you know, that means that the a lot of the things that we take for granted in other professions just aren't there. And communications is always going to be a challenge in the school system. It's a challenge in every urban school system in America. And uh, it's not going to be fixed overnight, but it's going to take somebody who just kind of wakes up every day and goes to sleep every night thinking about, okay, how do I communicate with the adults who need to know about these decisions, whether it's the mayor, the council, PTOs, principals, whoever, whoever, whoever. Sometimes it's not good enough to just wake up and do what's right. You have to do kind of the the atmospheric work around it uh, in order to protect the decisions. Being one of Dr. Joseph's strongest supporters at this juncture, why resign from the board now when you're sitting here telling me how important the work that Dr. Joseph is doing, how racially charged and racially charged racist, I'm not really sure what the difference is. If you want to say the opposition to him is racist or racially charged, that seems like an environment that you should be backing your guy aggressively using your vote, not walking away from the fight, it seems really odd. So why not just say, I'm going to opt not to run for re-election in, in 2020? I mean, why why now? 
You know, I spoke to a high school civics class earlier today, and I got asked almost exactly that same question. And my response then and my response now is it's fundamentally a personal decision. You know, I I have to decide, you know, what's best, uh, the highest and best use of my time and energy. And is it this anymore? I don't think it is. But the other thing uh, that I thought was important right now is, is, you know, somebody needed to deliver a shock to the system. And I think that my uh, resignation or mic drop or whatever you want to call it uh, delivered a shock to the system. It touched off at least a week of conversation about um, race and equity and um, and common sense around the budget that had not existed uh, before that moment. Uh, the mayor is uh, reaching in in ways that, that I think are ultimately productive to um, to help uh, you know rationalize the situation. So, you know, if if my departure does nothing else besides stimulate a bunch of conversations that didn't exist before, that's not a bad contribution. I can see that, and of course, you know, respect the kind of personal decision there as well. Again, from from the outside, I, I don't I don't know you particularly well, and I'm not an education expert, but. It almost seems like to me, of course, you worked on Governor Bredesen's campaign for uh, for U.S. Senate last year. I haven't looked into the attendance records recently at school board meetings, but I know there was some attention drawn to over a five-month span from May to September. I believe you missed six out of nine meetings. To me, I'm wondering if, is Will Pinkston just sort of tired of this stuff? And he, he came back after the Bredesen campaign into a super divisive school board that has pretty much been that way for your entire tenure and just sort of said, I've had enough and I'm going to go try to contribute in other ways. Well, first, I find it uh, funny how much the nitwits on Twitter uh, love to obsess over my attendance record. I mean, let me be clear about my attendance on the school board. I've uh, been better than 80% of meetings uh, since I started my school board service. Uh, some people have uh, busier years than other others profe- personally and professionally, and last sure. year was a was a busy year. Um, I don't uh, criticize board members who miss for health reasons or professional reasons, uh, and, uh, and I think it's kind of amusing that this is how uh, you know the haters choose to spend their time is is obsessing over how many minutes did I stay in this meeting or that meeting or which ones did I miss and so forth. Um, but in an environment of education where I mean attendance is is kept for students, we have a real truancy problem, and certainly if if teachers weren't attending, I mean I understand the, your point, but yeah, at the same time it does it, seem it, a little bit important to me. No, the you're wrong, uh, Ben. The the attendance thing is important in as much as you need to be there for key votes, whether it's contracts or yeah. resolutions or other things. But what people don't understand is the vast majority of school board service or council service or other things does not happen in the boardroom or in the council chamber or anywhere else. You know, eighty to ninety percent of school board service is about constituent service, and I never ever once let down any of my constituents. And the one thing uh, that I feel, you asked me what I feel most proud about uh, earlier, I feel like I instilled a much bigger and better customer service mentality in the school system than existed before I got there. I'm certain of that. Um, so a lot of the things that you're talking about or the the Twitter nitwits are talking about is just kind of perfunctory 
you know, was he there? Was he willing to sit through and listen to the latest soliloquy by, you know, this aggrieved board member or that aggrieved board member? Or did he choose to make better use of his time and catch the game tape, you know, on YouTube, you know, the next day or whatever? So that's that's a complete red herring. I'm just wondering if you came back post-Bredesen campaign maybe more present at the meetings than you were before and were just like, I'm tired of this dysfunction. Your letter read a little bit like that. You said, in fact, something to effect that you still believe in elected school boards, just not that one. And that one is just so toxic and dysfunctional. Yeah. What happened uh, is um, as I really started assessing the current situation from all sides, and I wanted to to give some time. I mean, I'm a former journalist, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know, I, I want to let the story play out a little bit. And then I want to step back and really understand exactly, you know, who's saying what, you know, where the facts are, where the facts are not. And what I found is the people who were attacking Dr. Joseph, the, most of the attacks were not rooted in fact. They were rooted in um, anxiety, emotion, um, uh, personal agendas, other things. And again, we've talked previously uh, in this conversation, he's made some of his own mistakes. But, you know, based on the totality of what has happened, uh, I've just decided that it's it's an unfair situation for him. It's an unfortunate situation for the school system in the city. And I don't want to be part of it anymore. What do you think the next big issue for the board is? There, Of course, the charter expansion fights. Now we have the drama around Dr. Joseph's future. What do you think is on the horizon? I think Dr. Joseph's going to be fine. I think um, he's probably got no shortage of school systems and organizations lined up, you know, wanting him in his services. And I think that um, he's going to leave with his head held high under, you know, what timeline, I don't know. But uh, the next big decision for the board will be to manage through the contractual uh, exit of Dr. Joseph, then uh, hire an interim superintendent who essentially will be a caretaker. Then the big question is, who's the next superintendent? And I'm not a big fan about saying, okay, this person, whoever it is, is going to solve everything, or that person is. You know, the board definitely has a big personnel decision in front of it, but the board has a bigger um, set of questions in front of it, which is, you know, how are we as a nine-member body going to operate? Uh, Because what's happening now is not working, and something needs to change. Any ideas on that front? Well, I think as a starting point, uh, individual board members shouldn't be um, uh, fussing around in personnel issues, uh, in, con- in contract issues, and other things. I mean, yeah, we're obligated under state law to uh, to sign off on contracts, and we need to do our statutory responsibility. But you know, at the end of the day, the CEO and the superintendent, whoever he or she is, needs to be in a position to hire the people who they want to hire in order to build the team that they think needs to get the job done. And that doesn't always mean they're going to hire the right people or the best people. And it doesn't always mean that you're going to uh, adhere to um, uh, some you know artificial pay scale. I mean, sometimes you just got to you know pay people what it takes to get them here, particularly if they're coming from places uh, on the East Coast or West Coast that are that are um, higher uh, cost markets, and then on the issue of contracts, you know, personnel uh, uh, or professional consulting. I mean, it's the same difference. I mean, you there is a legitimate use of um, consulting in any large organization. In some ways, it often saves money because you're not having to deal with legacy benefits and and uh, other things that are associated with with true employment. And again, it's it's giving 
the CEO the ability to make the decisions that they think are in the best interest of the organization. And I told a couple of my board colleagues when they first started uh, raising cane with Dr. Joseph, I called each one of them and I said, hey, don't confuse you know, bureaucratic missteps with um, corruption. Um, just, you know, there, there's a certain amount of bad decision making that, that happens in a big bureaucracy, uh, particularly at the middle management level, and ours is no different. It's a very big enterprise. Um, and just because something wrong happened doesn't make it wrongdoing. And you can look across the metropolitan government, across the state government, across the federal government. It happens. And it, the only reason we hear so much about it. Uh, in government is because it's all subject to public records and all that kind of stuff. But it happens in the private sector, too. There are just bad decisions sometimes happen in big organizations. And the issue is not to blow up the organization, which is what's happened here over the last year. The issue is let's knuckle down, figure out how to deal with it, and prevent stuff from happening again. And before we started recording, we talked a bit about that, and you seemed very much of the mind that if they'd done an HR audit at any point over the last few decades, they would have found mishandlings of various issues, harassment. Um, if you'd had people le- you know, leaking procurement details, you would have found stuff there under register Garcia or you know, whoever it was. It's difficult to prove that, but it, it seems perhaps under Dr. Joseph it's been a bit worse. It, it's, it's hard to know, though. It's not been uh, worse at all. Uh, the, the, one of the great secrets on the school board for years and years has been the broken uh, nature of the HR operation. And it started, um, who knows when it started, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago, I don't know. Uh, but when, when I got on the board in 2012, one of the first things I asked for was a strategic compensation analysis. Um, I was tired of Jesse Register telling us, who's the former superintendent, telling us that we pay people more than Cheatham County and Wilson County and, and Montgomery County. Um, I said, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear what are we paying teachers relative to Louisville, Atlanta, Austin, peer districts around the country. Right. And they never could answer that question, which told me then, and I still believe that the HR system was broken irreparably back then. We uh, asked for an, an analysis. Yeah, that's pretty sad. That's a Google search. Well, of course. But, um, but again, that just shows the level of incompetence that existed in that system historically. Uh, then, you know, fast forward to um, the, uh, the, the transition between superintendents. In 2016, the school board received an analysis from the Council of the Great City Schools, which is a coalition or an association of large urban school systems in America that showed that the HR function was adrift at that point and was badly broken. One of the first things we asked Dr. Joseph to take on was see if you can correct that, and he just wasn't able to get a complete handle on it. And, you know, it's it's not a – I won't call it a failing, but it was definitely, um, you know, a shortcoming that we weren't able to get that rectified sooner rather than later. And the reality is, again, you've got a nearly 11,000 employee uh, organization. We're the fourth largest employer in the Nashville area. We're not um, hiring uh, a bunch of office workers and and temps. These are licensed professionals largely. It's kind of like running a hospital chain. There's a whole other layer of complexity Mm -hmm. when you have an organization that's that's that big and that that, that is uh, that heavily regulated. 
Um, and then, uh, again, we got toward the end of last year and still we're not happy with where we were. So we commissioned, you know, another analysis to try to, you know, you know, bring more clarity. And then when it came back, um, it wasn't, hey, good for the school board and good for Sean Joseph for uh, commissioning and accepting this unvarnished assessment. It was everybody's done the wrong thing. That's not what should have happened. And that's the thing that I think uh, bothers me a lot about what, what's gone on here. Two final questions. One, we have a lot of charter schools in the city. I think next year, uh, something like 15,000 students are going to be enrolled in a charter school across the county. Are there any examples, you being someone who's fiercely against charters, wants to close them all, are, are there any examples of a charter school that's doing well in your eyes, Valor or KIPP? Or, and if not the entire school, are there certain elements of what they do that you think the district could do well by adopting? That's a great question. I think that the one charter school that has not drawn my ire is Valor Collegiate, which is located just slightly south of my school board district along Nolensville Road. The thing I respect about Valor is they don't lie like the rest of the charter schools. They say very intentionally, we're going to gerrymander our student body. We're going to cherry pick students from traditional schools. We're going to counsel out kids who don't make the grade. And uh, we're going to um, create an environment that we shape. Uh, and we don't really care if it has a, uh, a, a you know, devastating financial or social impact on the, on the schools that we're rating. Um, so I don't, like I don't agree with that philosophy, but I just respect the fact that they're telling the truth. And, um, and I think, you know, there's any school or any school system can wake up in the morning and say, hey, we're going to, we're going to be really selective in admissions and we're going to create an environment um, that, that allows us um, to claim success. But by doing that, we're going to disenfranchise everybody else. I just personally don't think that's the right thing to do in public education. Um, but I think that's what charter schools do. Everybody needs to understand that they are not playing on the same uh, playing field as the rest of us. Uh, but I do admire the ones who you know, are upfront about it. Uh, admire is not the right word. I, I, I respect them for telling the truth. You appreciate it. Is there any practice within Valor that uh, a public school district could and should adopt? Valor's doing a good job with social and emotional learning uh, programs, but so is MNPS. And what we need is the resources to expand uh, those those uh, initiatives. And that's part of what this current budget request is built around. But it, unfortunately, you know that good work is going to get overshadowed by the fictitious nature of um, of uh, the other requests around employee pay raises and other things that are going to be going to the mayor. So it's it's hard. You know, to, to tell the truth in one part of the budget uh, while you're lying, you know, on the other side of the budget. But uh, I think social emotional learning is a big opportunity for everybody right now. And charters are, are arguably helping lead the way. As I think about sort of the politics of the school board sending a budget to the mayor's office that's requesting a, a 10 percent raise for teachers, which I, th- I think we would both agree is something that um, is much needed in terms of helping recruit and retain talent. You're just pointing out, uh, rightfully so, we don't have the money this year. Um, but politically, it would seem that Mayor Bradley would very much appreciate such budget not be sent to him and for him to have to turn down the request. With that in mind, do you have any association with Mayor Bradley currently or in the future? 
No. Um, you know, I've, I've supported the mayor for a number of years, uh, going back to when he ran for mayor in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I consider him to be a friend or at least friendly. Um, and most of all, I just feel bad as a board member who uh, is involved in a board that's getting ready to punt you know, the entire responsibility uh, for this budget to him um, in his first year as mayor uh, without doing uh, the legwork uh, that's required to really make a strong case for why we're a chronically underfunded school system. I mean, one of the things that we did in state government really well, I thought, was we would spend a year just defining the problem. Here's the problem. Let me tell you about the problem again. Have I told you about this problem? You know, let me repeat uh, the problem. And then by the time you get to the end of that process, um, people are ready for solutions. And the problem that we've got now is we've skipped the first part, and it's go straight for the solution, straight for the instant gratification. There's been no discussion about you know, what a rational multi-year solution could look like, uh, both from, um, uh, you know, a, a compensation structure, but also the revenue. You know, kind of, do we go to the property tax? Uh, are there alternate sources of revenue that we have to be thinking about? For example, in Philadelphia, they're raising $90 million a year uh, for pre-K expansion by taxing soda water, Cokes and Pepsis. Uh, that's a uh, politically popular syntax. We're... Um, only one-third of the size of Philly, but I'd take $30 million for pre-K expansion. Um, is there a conversation about how do we let visitors pay for some of this stuff? Nobody wants to have those conversations because the intellectual capacity does not exist on the board to do that uh, with uh, at least a third of the membership. Um, it's Those are the conversations that can happen and should happen, but it's going to take a different configuration on the board in order to get there. Final question, what are your future plans? Um, after April 12th, I think everyone's pretty interested walking away from the school board prematurely. What do you have in mind? Well, first of all, April 12th is, uh, while it's it's a hard and fast date in as much as my resignation letter, uh, it could easily become May 12th or June 12th, depending on if the board can pull its act together um, in the near future. So I'm not going to leave until contract talks conclude. Uh, I'm not going to leave until there's an interim superintendent uh, selected and then you know, I'll be able to, uh, to, to, to to ride off into the sunset. My immediate plans are to plan a vacation, which I haven't had a real vacation in a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. My immediate plans are whoever the council selects as my replacement to give that person, whoever he or she is, uh, as much as they're interested in having it, the same kind of tutorial uh, that I wish I had gotten when I joined the board. It took me, you know, literally – a year to kind of find my, my way around the building and, and find my way around the process. So I'm, I'm very interested in helping whoever my replacement is short circuit the learning curve. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, I don't have any plans for public service. This has been a, you know, a, a massive distraction from my uh, professional commitments. Uh, my day job, I'm a communications consultant. But at the same time, it's also been the most important thing I've been doing in life other than being a husband and a father. So I think what I'm going to do is double down on being a husband and a father and uh, and go make go make some money again. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Um, well, hey, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast and sitting through some what I hope were some tough but fair questions. Totally fair questions. Um, and uh, I'm tough. Uh, six and a half years on the school board will toughen you up if anybody hmm. wants to ever uh, take a go at it. And Ben, I appreciate uh, your uh, efforts to promote civic discourse. There we go. Well, thanks again and best of luck. 
Views that I express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the Metropolitan Government of Nashville and Davidson County.